Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 5, if you have a Bible tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to just sort of conclude the story that we talked about last week. So we sort of left off in the middle of a pretty bizarre story. And trust me, it continues in its weirdness. Um, 1 Samuel in general, the book of 1 Samuel in general, is pretty weird. I'm not going to lie to you. I love the Bible. Don't mishear me. I love all parts of the Bible. Honestly, one of my favorite books of the Bible, don't judge me, is Leviticus. I know that seems weird, but I really like Leviticus. So um, I swear, if Xfinity calls me one more time, I am throwing my phone in the trash can. Stop it. Golly. We, there are, I'm not going to tell a story. It doesn't matter. All right, moving on. I love the Bible. First Samuel's got some weird stories in it. That's all I'm trying to say. All right, last week we saw, this was sort of our idea and what we talked about last week, that if we want to experience all that God has for us, Christ must be the center of our lives. We talked about that reality. If we want to experience all that God has for us, Christ has to be the center of our lives. Now in the story, what we were talking about is that the army of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them, thinking that God was a commodity that you just add to your life to fix all your problems. That you just sort of bring a little God in, bring a little prayer in, bring a little Bible in, and all of your problems are solved. And we talked about how that's just not true. That God isn't a genie that we just bring in when we need our wishes granted or we have problems and he comes in like vanilla ice and solves them. Does anybody get that reference? It doesn't matter besides my wife. If you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Anyways, um, so do you guys know that song? Raise your hand if you don't know that song. All right, afterwards, small group leaders, you understand your assignment tonight now. Um, okay, anyways, um, God doesn't just show up and solve your problems. That's not the point. The army of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant to battle with them thinking that God was a commodity. And what happened was they ended up losing the battle. The Ark of the Covenant got captured. The prophets were killed. And the high priest died. And then this news returned to Israel where the wife of one of the prophets had a son named him Ichabod, which means no glory, because she believed that God's glory was over. God will never do anything good again. So, sort of cliffhanger, the Israelites lose, the Philistines win, the, uh, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, and there's sort of hopelessness in the land of Israel. And we're going to pick up in chapter 5 following the Ark of the Covenant. I've titled this message, uh, you can write this down, The Cost of Believing a Lie. The Cost of Believing a Lie is what we're going to talk about tonight. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Are you guys there? If not, the verses are on the screen, but you can follow along in the YouVersion Bible app if you click the events tab. All right, verse 1. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to Ebenezer. Somebody say Ebenezer. Ebenezer. It's just a fun word I thought I would share with you guys. Ebenezer um, to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. We'll talk about him in a minute. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. 
So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. All right, now this part of the story, it's pretty funny. This whole story is a little bit funny. But they bring the Ark of the Covenant back, so they defeat the Israelites. Remember, there was the Israelites come back. They bring the Ark. They're like, we got this. God is here. He's this box, and he's going to show up and win for us. And they let out a mighty cry that the whole earth shook. And the Philistines are like, what was that? This has never happened before that the people, the Israelites have brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle. So they're like, all right, guys, let's fight like men. Let's go out there and beat them. And the Philistines go out, and they defeat the Israelites. They steal the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it back to their country. And in their country, they go to their temple, which they worship a god called Dagon, and they set the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. Now, Dagon was one of the Philistines' many gods. He was known to have the head of a man and the body of a fish. If you Google it, he kind of looks like a mermaid a little bit. Um, Although other images show him sort of with the face of a person and sort of like the hat of a fish, like his, it's like a hat that's a fish. It's super kind of weird. Google it after the Bible study, Dagon. Um, he's known as the God that would guarantee an abundance of grain. That's what he was known for. He wasn't an agriculture God. He was really known as the source of prosperity in general. Um, the God of prosperity and blessing. This is Dagon. The head of a, the hat of a fish or the face of a man and the body of a fish, whatever it was. And so they had this temple set up to Dagon. Now, Dagon, like all uh, uh, sort of false gods or sort of gods in this context, it was a man-made statue. All right? So, uh, in fact, Isaiah and the psalmist talks about this, that, that people worship gods that they've created, that they've gone out into the woods, they cut down a tree, they drag the tree back to their house, they begin to whittle it and carve it and shape it, and then they name it, and then they begin to bow down and worship it. And for some of them, they would offer animals to these false gods, and to some, many of these uh, gods of the, the Canaanites and the Philistines and people like that required human sacrifice, and so they would go out to the woods, imagine this, they would go out to the woods, they would cut down a tree, they would shape it and form it into a god, and then they would sacrifice their own children to this tree that they just chopped down. And you're like, are you guys nuts? Nobody told you to do that. You cut down the tree, my brother in Christ, right? Like, what are you doing? So they bring this God, they set it up. They have the temple to Dagon, this God that looks like a fish or looks like a mermaid or whatever it was. They defeat the Israelites. They bring the Ark of the Covenant back and they set it up in the temple. Now imagine the scene. They set it up very specifically. There was Dagon, 
set up in a place of prominence where they would bow down and worship or offer sacrifice or whatever it was. And then they bring the Ark of the Covenant to set below God, the, the Dagon God. The image was as if the God of Israel or the Ark of the Covenant was bowing down and worshiping Dagon, the superior God. Are you seeing it? So here they are. They bring the Ark of the Covenant in. Dagon, the fish God, is the winning winning God. He defeated the Israelites in battle. So we're going to set up the Ark of the Covenant as if it's bowing down to Dagon. So they set him in there. What happens? They leave it. They're like, Dagon's the man, fish god, my guy. All right, we'll see you later. They come back the next day, and Dagon had fallen down, and the image has reversed. No longer is the Ark of the Covenant bowing down to Dagon, but Dagon had fallen down, and now Dagon is bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. And they go, oh no, our god fell down. We've got to pick him back up, right? Because you know how you have to get God out of a jam, like whenever God's in a jam, he texts you like, oh no, help me out. I don't know what to do. And so they pick their God back up and they set him back where he belongs. And they're like, okay, Dagon, stay, stay, fish God, like stay there. They leave, they come back the next day. And what happens? Oh no, Dagon fell down. This time he's broken and he can't get back up. Dagon, our God, what, oh no, what do we do? And so they evaluate this situation. They say, here is Dagon, our God, the fish God, who can't even stand on his own. And here's the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. This was a picture of God. And when it was done right, not when it was viewed as a commodity, but when it was done right, this was where the presence of God would dwell. So this is where God would, the the word is tabernacle or meet with his people. And the Ark of the Covenant was this visual representation of God encountering his people. And so we have the Philistines encountering the reality of God. Here is their God who can't stand on its own fishtail. And yet... It's bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant, and they're, they're sort of left with the decision. What are they going to do with this information? What are they going to do with the fact that their God is inferior to the God of Israel? And with that truth, with that reality, they end up shipping it off. They say, we can't keep this here. Why? Because the God of Israel's hand is harsh against us. They say, we can't keep this God around. Why? Well, because he's making our God look bad. And so they ship the Ark of the Covenant off. Eventually it gets back to Israel. And here's sort of the interesting thing. Is the Philistines, they recognize in this moment that God is powerful. That the true and living God, Yahweh, that he is powerful. They're even confronted with the fact that the God of Israel is more powerful than their God. Their God can't even stay standing up. And here is God, the presence of God, showing himself strong in a very real way. So their God is inferior to the God of Israel. But even though they see God as powerful even though they see that their God is inferior, they don't think that he, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is worth serving or surrendering to. 
They would rather continue to worship their inferior God than serve the obviously real God. This is the situation. They're confronted with the reality of God. He's real. He's powerful. He's, he, he's available. He's there. He's accessible. They're, they're faced with that reality. And they choose that they would rather serve their inferior God than get rid of the fish God and surrender to the real God. And the reason was because this would require life change. That means they would have to change how they worship. They would have to change how they live. They would have to change how they behave. It means they would actually have to follow God. (laughs) The nice thing about idolatry is that you just make yourself God, right? You make your little statue and you say, okay, what do you want me to do today? And you're like, that's exactly what I was thinking. All right, let's go with that, right? Because it's nothing. It's a statue. It has no power. It has no truth. It has no calling. It's just there. And they're like, okay, little man, what what do we do today? Okay, that's what I was thinking. I'm going to do whatever I want to do because idolatry, serving something inferior to the true and living God, essentially says I'm God and I can do whatever I want. The true and living God, he moves and speaks and directs and even corrects our life. So what do we do? Listen to me, this is kind of where we're going. What do we do when the reality of God conflicts and confronts your perspective on reality? What do you do when the reality of God conflicts and even confronts your perspective on reality? This is the point for tonight. One thing is this. It is better to believe and obey the truth than believe and obey a lie. It is better to believe and obey the truth than to believe and obey a lie. We live in a world of lies. We live in a world of lies and we live in a world of relative truth. Relative truth or living your own truth where we just, we define it and we do it. In other words, it's idolatry. (laughs) We say, okay, here it is. I made it. I define it and I do what I want want to do with it. The the problem with, with sort of relative truth is there's no absolute. There's no concrete. There's no target, (laughs) It's constantly moving. It ebbs and flows based upon feeling or circumstance or or pop culture or what this person said or whatever it is. And we live in a world of relative truth or living your own truth where it's self-discovery and self-defining. I am whatever I say about myself or whatever I feel. And the problem with this thinking is the word of God gives us definitive truth. In fact, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says that when we know the truth, the truth being Jesus, we will be set free. And so in a world filled with lies and relative truth and being subject to our emotions and feelings and things like that, the word of God confronts that reality. It says, no, truth is not whatever you define it. Truth is what? The word of God defines. 
This becomes the reality that we must live in. And so what do we do when we're face to face with a biblical idea and a truth and a cultural idea and they're opposed to each other? What do we do? How do we navigate that? Whether it's an idea about myself, right? I, here, uh, an idea of truth. I'm defined by my ability, or I will only ever be what my parents were, or my value is stemmed from how people treat me. These are ideas that swirl around our mind. When the Bible says that you're empowered by the Spirit of God, you're not your parents, you're a new creation. Your value was worth the precious blood of Jesus. So when, when your insides tell you one thing and it's confronted with the reality of the word of God, what do you do? Or, or maybe it's a hot topic idea, like something like abortion. It's just a lump of cells. It's my body, so it's my choice. And then the Bible states that before you were formed, God had plans for you. That God knits every person together in their mother's womb and that all life is valuable to God regardless of mental capacity, ability, or even history. So what do we do when we're confronted with a cultural idea and the truth of the word of God? Or maybe something more common among young people like same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria which states that whatever you feel, you must explore and affirm. The Bible says that the heart and emotions are desperately wicked, impossible to know. And following every urge and impulse is not freedom, it's slavery. The way that the Bible defines, amen. The, the way that the Bible defines slavery over and over again is this, people doing whatever was right in their own eyes. That's biblical slavery. You fast forward to our day today, that's some definition of freedom. It's not. Freedom is found in not following however we feel or whatever people tell us or whatever we've sort of been bombarded with because of who we follow or what we've thought or what our teachers have told us. We're confronted with the reality, the truth of the word of God. And so what do we do with that? Well, in this situation, in the story that we just read for the worshipers of Dagon, they viewed the power and presence of God as a curse that needed to be removed. Okay, so they're confronted with a truth. They're confronted with a reality. They're confronted with the word of God. And how do they respond? They say, this is a curse and it needs to get out of here. This is, this is the 21st century we need to get that thinking out of here. This is a, a new world. People are different. This isn't the olden days, and so we don't need olden ideas. And so we say it's a curse, and we get it out of here. And many people do the same thing. They view God as a curse. Rather than recognize that God is God and turn to him and experience all the plans and all the goodness and all the freedom. Hear me tonight. The freedom that's found in Jesus. The freedom that's found in not self-definition or not self-exploration. But truly trusting what God has said both about us and about the world around us, that God loves the world, that he desires no one to perish, but he has a plan and a purpose and a direction for every person. 
the freedom and the hope that's found in him. And listen, so often we would rather stay away and stay the same. We'd rather stay away. That's a curse. I don't need that in here. Dagon, my fish God, he's enough for me. He lets me do whatever I want. I'm gonna keep him around. Get the real God out of here because I don't wanna be confronted with the reality of who he is. And the reason for that is because when we do that, we don't have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We just keep doing whatever we wanna do because it's easier to worship a dead idol than a living God. But the true and living God, listen to me, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ calls us to follow him and allow him to change and shape us into the people that God desires for us to be. So it's a surrender. It's a taking up the cross. It's saying, I am done with my own feelings, my own ideas, my own plans, my own purposes, and I'm following in the way of Jesus. And oftentimes, the way of Jesus leads to the cross. It leads to the cross. That means death to self. That means removal of old things. It means transformation. It means death. But then what does it also mean? It means resurrection into new life, into new hope, into new purpose, into new identity. And so the promise of God is not just come and die. It's die so that you can live again in the life you were created to live. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we believe. And we have to recognize, listen to me, we have to recognize that not all opinions are equal, not all ideas are true, and not all roads end in the same destination. Jesus said it like this, Matthew chapter 7. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to where? Destruction. And many enter into it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Listen to me, not all destinations are equal. So when you get in the the driver's seat and you're saying my emotions are gonna lead me or you get in the driver's seat and you say what I see on social media is gonna drive me. Or when we get in the driver's seat and we say, what what my parents say about me is going to drive me. Or you get in the driver's seat and you say, whatever whatever my uh, teachers have said about me or my classmates have said about me or my circumstances have said about me. And we let those things drive. Let me tell you, the destination is not going to be where you want to go. But when you get in the car and you say, I'm surrendered to King Jesus and I'm going to let him drive me. The destination is different, and you'll be pleased with where you've arrived. The the, the cost of believing a lie is ultimately being where you don't want to be. The cost of believing a lie and saying, I'm going to build my life on this, that, or the other, is arriving at a place that you don't actually want to be at. Because self can't satisfy, exploration won't find it, all of those things. It's just not true. And so coming to the point where we say not all destinations are the same, so I'm going to follow what Jesus calls the narrow way, which ends in life. Worship team, you guys can come up here. I'm going to close. I was, um, uh, it was a couple years ago now, but we were flying back from Ghana in West Africa where we've done, our church has sort of a sister church there that we started a number of years ago, and there's a, a, a 
academy, like an elementary and middle school, and then there's a Bible college there as well. My dream is that one day we can take at least high school students to see what God's doing over there. It is, uh, Christian's been there, I saw him not have said, it's insane, isn't it? It's amazing, but we were flying back, and the trip is, it's pretty intense. Um, basically, the travel from the time you leave like here, Calvary Vero, the first day from the time you arrive is about 30 hours of traveling. It's just nonstop. You're like in cars, you're on trams, you're in planes, you're on buses. It is brutal. So we were coming back, and at the end of the long trip, we've been two weeks or so in Africa, and, and, and the work has been uh, amazing, but it's been difficult, and you're not sleeping in your own bed, and the shower is either cold, or we call it shock shower, because it sometimes works, but you also might get electrocuted, no joke, um, in the shower. Anyway, so all the, the trip, and we're coming home, and the first, usually the first flight is from Accra in Ghana across the Atlantic to JFK, and it's about an eight to ten hour flight. Sometimes we have to go from Accra to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam to JFK. And we arrived, we landed in JFK, and we're almost home. Like once you land in the United States, you're like, I, le- I could drive home. It might take a while, but like I'm home, you know what I'm saying? And uh, there's just a two-hour flight to get back to Orlando and then ultimately home. And I remember we were sitting around waiting for our next flight. And uh, I don't remember who asked the question, but somebody asked the question, where would the destination have to be for you to get on a plane right now and not go home and go somewhere else? Where would it have to be? Because here's the option. You're going home, (laughs) your own bed, your shower, (laughs) your food, right, your pillow, like all the things that, like you've just been in Africa for two weeks, right, you've been in shock shower or cold shower, and you're like, okay, so where would the destination have to be for you to not get on plane going home where you belong and go somewhere else, and so people were throwing things out like, it would have to be like Bali, we go to Bali, I I would hop on a plane right now to go to Bali, or somebody was like, I want to go to, you know, whether it's like Switzerland, or let's go Australia, or Hawaii, or wherever it was, Las Vegas. Like, where is it that gonna, it's going to take you? And I remember I said something like, I would want to go somewhere where I could surf. So, like, let's go Bali, or Australia, or something like that. But I gave a little, like, caveat in it. Like, I would do it, but I need my surfboards here, or I need money to buy new surfboards. I need a bunch of money to pay for where I'm going to stay, and I need to guarantee that there's not going to be any other people there so I can serve by myself. So it's like, here are my options. Home, where I belong, or some other destination with all of these additions that are basically impossible, right? It's a, basically a promise that could never be fulfilled is on the other side. So there we are. It's not like this situation could ever actually happen. But we all got on the plane and we went home. But I just was thinking about that. And I was thinking for so many of us, we, we sort of imagine your life is sort of in a, in a layover. You're in an airport. Your whole life is a layover. 
Your whole life, because you're supposed to arrive at a destination. God created you for a purpose to arrive somewhere. And your whole life is in a layover. And your whole life, you have all of these different gates that are saying you can go to all these different places. The problem is the promise that they give you is a lie. Because probably the end is not Hawaii with your surfboards and nobody out. The promise is probably not Las Vegas with an infinite amount of money and you can just go, you know, play slots or whatever it is you're into. Like, that, the promise is a lie. And so here we have the option, our whole life as a layover, and are we going to make the decision to arrive at the destination, listen to me, where you belong? Where you belong. And I say all of that because we are often confronted with truth and lies. Lies from within, lies from people around us, lies from what we see that are all promising us, hey, here's the destination, you'll be happy when you get here. And then here's Jesus with the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And Jesus says, this destination will lead to life, belonging, hope, plans, future, goodness, forgiveness, all that you're longing for. So what do you do when you're confronted and conflicted with the realities that are around you, the truths that are around you? Are we going to be like the Philistines? We're like, get that away from me. It's a curse. I want to do what I want to do. Or are we going to surrender and say that I realize that it is better to believe and obey a truth than it is to believe and obey a lie? 